Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Megan Torres is an empath, a writer, and radical truth teller. She is a licensed independent social worker living in Columbus, Ohio, raising two children with her husband. She is also a mental health therapist that works with children and adolescents experiencing anxiety, depression, and mood disorders. And she is interested in how symptoms are exacerbated in the BIPOC community as they navigate a white supremacist society. Janelle Faison uses her voice and information technology experience to bring visibility to crucial topics that have the tendency to be ignored. She is a project manager for a not-for-profit property management development and consulting firm organized exclusively around the idea of advocating social welfare. When she is not creating housing solutions that address the plague of human trafficking or advocating for social and racial equity in the classrooms, she is spending time with her loving five-year-old daughter and her life partner. Yes. Yeah, so welcome both of you, Megan and Janelle, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So I, I just wanted to start by saying, and, and Megan, you shared this with me, and I thought that this is definitely what we want to put forth to our listeners, that this is a story that is a case study for bystanders in what to do and what not to do when you find yourself observing blatant injustice. So that's something I want people to keep in mind as they listen to your story. And with that, I would love for you to just begin, either one of you, sharing with us what you all have gone through with this Montessori school and with your children and your community. Sure. So in September of 2018, my seven-year-old son, Lincoln, was being bullied and I reached out to his teacher, did the whole chain of command thing. Um, I asked for a safety plan um, to make sure that he was safe at school. And when I went to the administration, I was pretty frustrated because from the get-go, they started to tone police um, and as a Black woman and a Black mother, I knew that I was in for some resistance, but I did not expect the intensity or duration of the resistance, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I finally had a conversation with the executive director or principal, and she stated that she did not like my tone. In addition to that, I had a run-in in the hallway with a non-Black woman of color um, who knows me. We have a history, um, a positive history. And she she said, I don't know why you're so mean and angry. Um, so that culminated in me stating what we're not going to do is uphold white supremacy. What we're not going to do is tone police, something along those lines. This was about 18 months ago. And she shut down immediately. I received an email the same day from the executive director, who is a white woman, stating that my son was no longer able to attend the school. So same day after I called out the administration for tone policing, for stereotyping, my seven-year-old son was kicked out of the school. Um, I work as a social worker. At that time, I worked with children at a local children's hospital. Um, I do outpatient therapy, and I knew that this was not going to be in his best interest emotionally, socially. Um, this occurred. The timing was really impeccable um, on, on her part because his last day was to be right before Christmas break. So there was not a lot of time to transition him, nor did I have a school to send him to in the beginning of the school year. Um, so I asked for him to stay the school year, made it clear that this was not what I wanted. 
explain to them what I meant about white supremacy being a system, um, explain to them what I know about unconscious racial bias. None of that did any good. <laughs> and we were still told that our family was unable to come back. So needless to say, that was really heartbreaking for me as a parent to share that with my son um, who told me that his body was being hurt. And when I went to advocate for him, he was unable to 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 come back to the school. So I'm still disheartened. I'm still flustered when I talk about it. I'm still angry. I'm still um, incredulous um, because I think there are no words. Why I always say that white supremacy is ludicrous. Um, and the more ludicrous the story, um, the more truth to it, I think. <laughs> and so right. whenever I say these words out loud, I get really frustrated. So that kind of that that incident led me to Janelle. Um, I started to campaign on social media, just letting people know my story. I believe as a therapist that there is strength in that. There's healing and sharing what happened to you. There is healing in telling stories about trauma. And to be clear, this is absolutely racial trauma. Uh, what occurred, uh, what happened to our family. And so Janelle actually um, had reached out to me and I'll let her take it from there. On the 30th of March, 2019, around about like 3.30 p.m., I received a, a call from an employee of a local private school in Columbus, Ohio, instructing me that uh, my daughter was exuding some challenging behaviors that weren't in uh, early pickup. So I immediately left work. Uh, my work is around the corner from the school arrived no later than about 10 minutes. Um, upon arrival, I was informed by a staff member that my daughter was in an observation room with the executive director, um, the same uh, individual that Megan spoke of. So I proceeded to the observation room and I just want to pause one minute to kind of explain what the observation room looked like on the day that this transpired. It is a very small room. It is similar to that of a closet. Um, the room housed a bookshelf, a pretty tall bookshelf um, with lots of classroom, like kind of an overflow of classroom materials. That day was very cluttered. Um, you can tell that, you know, people, um, the staff members were just utilizing it to kind of store, I wouldn't necessarily say junk, but just store um, materials that they could not fit in the classroom. It's also important to note that the observation room does not have a source of light. Any light that comes into the observation room is by way of the hallway. I proceeded to the observation room. I attempted to open the door, but I was denied entry because it was locked. So um, di directly after the executive principal, executive director opened the door and I was greeted by what I perceived to be an extremely frustrated and displeased look on the executive director's face. I entered the room and I found my daughter in the corner crying hysterically. And at that time, my daughter was four years old. So after five minutes of consoling my daughter, um, she stabilized. We, um, me and the executive director didn't really talk much because the focus was on my daughter and her emotions at that moment. Um, so I left. I collected her belongings and we left. Um, that evening, I had a talk with my daughter regarding what transpired. And she informed me that while she was locked in the, the room with the executive director that the executive director told her, quote, I cannot wait until you go to a different school. So mm -hmm. um, the following day, uh, my daughter was kind of hesitant of going back. Um, as we proceeded to school, my daughter informed me um, that, you know, the executive director doesn't want me there. She wants me to go to a different school. Do I have to go back? So I recognize it, you know, some type of trauma that resonated with, um, with my daughter by way of this incident. So a few days later, I took it upon myself to just go to the school and have a sit down conversation with the executive director to get more of an understanding of what transpired. The executive director informed me that she had little awareness of what transpired because she was not in the room at the time that leading up to the matter, the time that she got my daughter, had access to my daughter. But um, she was aware that my daughter was being disruptive and there was a need to control her behavior. So the executive director um, informed me that she believed that the observation room was the most appropriate space to treat an emotional breakdown, as they, they described it. 
I asked the executive director um, why that space, um, because it goes directly against their code and code stating no child should be placed in a locked room or otherwise confined in an enclosed area, such as a closet box or small cubicle. So um, after, you know, doing my due diligence prior to her meeting, I think that she was kind of the executive director was thrown off. Um, so she continued to to confirm her decision of placing um, my daughter in that room. So and it is important to note that the rule, um, not confining a child in an enclosed space, was governed by the Ohio Revised Code. So it's not just Mm -hmm. that it's a school policy, but it's a school policy governed by state law. The executive director um, said that she believed that my daughter was having behavioral issues because of um, what she believed changes in my uh, personal life. And I just thought that that was interesting because I've never had any personal relationship with anyone at the school. So I just thought that that was strange that she would bring up my personal life without having any knowledge of that, of my personal life. In addition to that, um, the executive director informed me that I and my daughter remind her of another um, mother and daughter that attended the school and that the daughter was just jealous of her time with um, her personal life as she began to date. And so again, it was just really off-putting to me. I asked, how could I disenroll my daughter and just leave the school? At this moment, at this time, we only had about a month left. However, I had signed a contract around about February to re-enroll my daughter for the 2019-2020 school year. So I asked, what do I need to do? Because I put a $500 um, deposit down to hold her spot. I just, you know, based off of the incident that transpired with my daughter and now this conversation, I just don't think that it's best that we continue to, um, I continue to put her in this environment. The executive director had replied to me that you're like ed choice. And so EdChoice is a scholarship that Ohioans receive um, by way of living in a failing school district or needing uh, financial assistance because they um, their household income doesn't meet a certain criteria. The executive director implied in our conversation that I was having financial hardship and she could make an exception um, because I had Ed Choice. And that too was incorrect because um, I qualified for the scholarship on the merit of living in a failing school district, not because of financial hardship. So again, it, it, it was just mm. a very, put, put a bad taste in my mouth. After that conversation, I had um, a follow-up conversation with the executive director and escapes me what her um, position is as of now, but um, similar to that of an assistant principal. And I had um, a conversation with the two and the executive director slipped me a document and said, hey, I know you want to disenroll. That's okay. That's cool. You can do that. But when you get home, take a look at this document and um, no need to rush. You have a timeline. Um, just fill this out and provide this back to me before the due date. So I think I think at that time it was like about a, a week or so. Again, school was about to let out. And I did not immediately look at that um, document. But once I did, I realized that I was given a non-disclosure agreement. And so this non-disclosure agreement stated that I just simply, I wouldn't disclose what transpired um, leading up to me being given the non-disclosure and that that was the only way that I can recoup my $500 deposit and the only way that I would not be held uh, liable for the full contract tuition for 2019-2020. And so the second part of your question was, so kind of what led up to meeting Megan. So I had voiced my concerns with the individual that I said I had a personal relationship with. This was a college friend who also was a mother, who's also a black woman, who I have a report with, who was also a board member. I'm not sure if I stated that, but I went to the uh, board member slash, you know, acquaintance slash mother and said, hey, this is what transpired. I'm not sure, you know, how to navigate this. Um, As the board member, how would you recommend I handle this? 
And um, she led me down a path to, you know, write a formal complaint, come to the board meeting, address your complaint in front of the board, so forth. During our communication, our correspondence about this situation, I was led to Megan by way of this board member through social media. I received um, an Instagram post. Um, I'm sorry, message from the board member who um, shared Megan's campaign. And so I reached out to Megan to say, hey, you know, I, I apologize that you went through that. I hope that your son is doing well. If you have the time, I would love to share my story with you. So we chatted. And since then, um, we've been inseparable. Okay, so just for from a timeline standpoint, Megan, what happened with your son was in 2018. And then Janelle, mm -hmm. what happened with your daughter was in 2019. And we're talking about a Montessori school with small children, correct? Correct. Yeah. So your son, how old was he at the time? He was six in the first grade. And Janelle's daughter was four in preschool. And um, just to reiterate, like Ohio Revised Code is so clear when it comes to preschoolers. You cannot remove a child from the classroom and isolate them in a room that is the size of a closet or any room at all. You're literally not supposed to remove a child from the classroom to take them anywhere else. It's right. like it's yeah. Sorry. I just still get caught up. My kids went to Montessori and for a small period of time, but the locked door, all of those things seem really problematic to me. So many red flags. I mean, right. I see, you know, at my old job at the children's hospital that I worked at um, as an outpatient counselor, I saw children with significant behavioral challenges. And I cannot imagine if a child threw a tantrum, which they did all the time, every Wednesday, <laughs> um, I had intakes. Every Wednesday, if I locked my door, and I think even as parents, we all know that when a small child is escalated, best practice is not to move them to a smaller space with stuff in it, right? right. So right. that raises a lot of red flags, and it raises um, a lot of red flags around the people who are allowing this to continue. So that is where my my biggest frustration lies is, okay, we know we have a challenge with this one person, but that's not how white supremacy works. Um, it works to protect itself and it uses people, bystanders to do that very effectively. Yeah. So tell us about the campaign, because that is where I first learned about you and what was going on was your campaigning efforts, reaching out to media organizations, reaching out to different places. So I'd love to hear about that. I want to add a little piece and um, I'll, I'll turn it over to Megan because she was the, the biggest um, um, organizer and behind the campaign. But before we even decided to go the campaign route, I think it is really important to know because I, I don't believe that we've ever stated this publicly, but there was an attempt to have conversation with the attorney that the school hired. Um, multiple attempts to sit down and type and kind of mediate the situation so that both parties yeah. get um, come out where it's mutually beneficial, right? Um, there was not uh, a jump to say, hey, let's go out and let's campaign. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. And a little bit of that, it was, hey, well, we know that this could turn down the wrong path. You know, we, we, we don't know what we will be expecting here. So prior to that, let's try to um, remedy the situation by just having very open and honest dialogue with all parties, including, you know, the attorney if need be, or just the attorney explicitly before we have to go down that route. So um, unfortunately, as you see, we campaigned. So I say that to say that um, the attorney and the school and the board, um, they just weren't interested in having that dialogue. They just wanted the signed NDA and for um, us to go away. So I'll turn it over to Megan to talk about her campaigning initiatives. So the campaign started off smaller. My initial goal was to inform people about what happened, tell my story, 
but also my son lost um, what's called the Ed Choice Grant. Janelle had talked about that a little bit earlier, but um, state funding basically because we live in a failing school district. And due to the timing of the executive director, he lost over $50,000 in funding forever. So not just that school year, um, he lost the grant from the time from first grade through 12th grade. And that's gone (laughs) forever because um, of the timing of her dismissal. You lose the grants if you do not finish out the school year. Um, So I obviously cannot speak to her motive, but the timing was really suspicious and it felt like a punishment and retaliation for speaking up. And so it was December, it was around Christmas of 2018. I just kind of hashtag my ass off. Basically, I had not done anything like this before. I just knew that I was a really good writer and that I was going to tell my story as many ways as possible. Um, Because whenever I go through something as a Black woman, I know that someone else is going through it too. Like these experiences do not exist in a vacuum. So I just wanted to be vocal. And I connected with Montessorians for Social Justice, um, which is an amazing group. And they are advocates. They're all um, Montessori trained teachers. And most of them have background in anti-bias, anti-racism training as well. And so they were very helpful in helping me frame what this should look like. Um, Amelia of Hood Montessorian on Instagram, she was my rock at the beginning. Like before I met Janelle, I felt so alone. I felt afraid. I felt scared. And it might not seem like it because I really go in on my posts, but I was scared and I didn't know what I was doing, um, except that it was the right thing to do to to speak out. And so she helped me frame my demands. Um, They were so basic. They were so very basic. I asked for an apology to my son. I asked for um, anti-racism training at the school for teachers and staff and administration. And um, I asked for behavior management training for the teachers and staff just in general. And this was before I had even learned about what happened to Janelle. So a part of me feels, I don't want to say guilty, but, but frustrated and sad because in a perfect world, if they had listened to me, maybe that would not have happened to Janelle's daughter, mm. right? So yeah. you have all of this in place. You're aware of your bias. In addition to that, you have some things, some skills and tools that you can use practically for behavior management. Um, maybe maybe she would not have taken a four-year-old child that was acting developmentally appropriately, removed her from the room, locked her in a room, the size of a closet. I, I I think that that is my biggest regret is that they didn't listen. And then this happened. Um, and then other parents um, started to come forward, but none of them wanted to do so publicly because like Janelle mentioned, uh, the NDA, the non-disclosure agreements came to fruition. Um, so other parents were one terrified that their children would be kicked out if they stood with us. Um, and then be parents that said, you know what, this is not okay. Um, I, I'm not keeping my child here after they heard what happened to me. And Janelle had to sign non-disclosure agreements in order to leave. So if you don't sign, you are on the hook for tuition for this this school year. So it, it's a significant financial hardship. Wow. I think it's important that we understand the campaign because that's an important piece. And it's really Notable what you said, Megan, that while I know that it's hard to um, not take responsibility because it's not your fault that the school and the administration chose to not um, enforce training and 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 just really do any type of restorative action to prevent it from happening again. And then which is why it then happened to Janelle's daughter. Um, I just think that's an important an important piece. So my my question is, as a social worker, Megan, you know, uh, you, you know, you have had a background with regards to advocating for children. That is not mm-hmm. necessarily something that parents know. We're not equipped with how to identify harm being done, how to make demands, what does um, creating and advocating for change on behalf of our children look like? So can you share a little bit more about how you made the decision 
to start sharing your story so that you could um, help other parents find solidarity when it came to seeking justice for their children as well. Sure. I think the biggest is um, righteous indignation and anger. I think that fuels a lot of advocacy and activism work. Um, So at the beginning, it was pure like mama bear, like, how dare you? What is wrong with you? This can't happen again to my child or another child. And I think then reality hits you, though, as, as you as you start to advocate and speak up, there will be so much resistance from everyone. I think that's where it moves from advocacy, I guess, in my mind, to activism. Like you are truly, truly alone. We did have a ton of support online nationwide. I got wonderful, wonderful words of wisdom and just, you know, funny memes from people who were supportive, but real life on the ground activism looks like giving up some of your privilege and stepping out of your comfort zone. And while I think it's always important to acknowledge the role that privilege plays in that, you know, there are many parents out there who, um, if their child is kicked out of the middle of the school year, you know, they don't have the means or resources to place them in a different private school and pay out of pocket, um, which is something I had to do um, for my son because it was right before Christmas break. So obviously there was no time to look at schools and evaluate um, and things like that. So I I just think that is the scary part about it. Um, Practically speaking, I think that parents need to document everything. Most all of our exchanges were through email. That's just how I am. And I think it is part of my social work background um, because I do know how schools tend to respond to parents of any color or background when they say, hey, my kiddo is being bullied. Um, They don't like that because it means that they have to put in some special structures to make sure the child is safe. So document, document, document. If you are part of a parent association, I think that's really important. I think that if you can get on the board at a school, do it. Um, Ideally, you would do this prior to any advocacy work, kind of like a what is it, a wolf in sheep's clothing, <laughs> kind of like get in there first. Yeah. Um, and then when you have some power, maybe you're able to exert that. I think one of the reasons why our advocacy campaign, I don't want to say it didn't work because that's not true. We raised awareness. However, raising awareness was not the goal. Reconciliation, not even reconciliation after what happened to Janelle. Restitution, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's what I was looking for and that, that did not happen. And I think the protest that we held on the first day of school, um, earlier this year, that, that was kind of the culmination. That was kind of us saying, look, you're going to listen whether you want to or not, because we're here, we're not going away. What happened was wrong. Um, and we stood in that. Um, We had some local help from a local activist from BQIC, and they helped us with that protest, and I will be forever grateful to them. I can still remember the night before the protest, and me and Janelle were talking, and we were like, she was like, are you ready? And I was like, um, I guess so (laughs) at this point, because we just didn't, you know, this isn't something that we we thought would happen. We thought Mm -hmm. they would listen to reason. And so I think that is significant is that it doesn't matter how reasonable you are when you are black. It just doesn't matter. So we held the protest the first day. The executive director contacted the police before we even got there. So that's another level of trauma and gaslighting, honestly. So here is this white woman who committed this violent act against a four-year-old child um, and a six-year-old child disrupted their education, calling the police on two mothers and peaceful protesters prior to us, our, our, our physical presence. I think that always hits me when I, when I stop to think about it, how hurtful that is, especially when, like Janelle stated earlier, I mean, my, if you looked at my inbox for this, I have so many emails reaching out to members of the board asking them to, hey, do you want to grab some tea? Hey, you know, I don't know what the story is that you're getting, but let's hash this out, talk about it. I'm open 
you know, I'm an open book. If you have questions about what happened, what did I mean when I said this? What and I and it just didn't seem to it didn't matter. So I think that there is power in numbers. If the other parents would have stood up like Janelle did, we wouldn't be in this position either. It's a small school. I think even if um, a handful of parents had come forward and stood with us, she would no longer be the executive director at that school. Um, the training would have happened. I don't know if the apology would have ever happened because, again, they enlisted the help of lawyers, <laughs> which is aggressive in itself because Janelle and I don't have any lawyers, right? We're two mm-hmm. Black mothers who said, hey, what happened? This isn't okay. How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? Which is pretty simple. And I think that's a really great place to start to wrap up. I think about when Jen shared your story with me originally and in listening to both of you um, talk about what happened with your children. Um, and Megan, this is something that you said that I thought was really profound and I wrote it down. I'm taking notes as I'm listening to both of you talk. But you you talk about how there's healing and sharing our stories there's healing and using our voices. And as you shared your story, even though this is a, a racially traumatic uh, situation that happened to your son and to you, that was your, your courage and using your voice and, and, and writing about it and creating that campaign is what led you to Janelle. Um, and you all were able to then work together and, and just be in solidarity with, uh, solidarity with one another moving forward. Um, so that even though you did not receive the outcome that you were looking for, the outcome that would have been restorative, you have found a new community and you found um, other parents who have experienced this. Um, and you've been able to inspire so many others who, I, who understand how violent and harmful this has been for your families. And so mm-hmm. that's what's been important to Jen and I is to be able to listen and give both of you an opportunity to show, to share your story in your words with your voices. And so now the question that I want to ask is looking back, what would justice and restitution look like for your children and for your families? So I think that, um, it would look like for first, my daughter is an apology, is an apology. I mean, no um, child deserves to be handled in that manner. And then um, no child deserves to be told that they're not wanted, right? So um, I think that that is the first step. Also, um, ensuring that there's some type of um, committee in place at the school that ensures that these type of occurrences don't happen again. Also, as we demanded for the uh, staff members to go undergo some type of training, so anti-bias training, um, to undergo uh, training as it relates to classroom management. Um, the teacher in our incident acknowledged that she handled the uh, situation with my daughter incorrectly and she wished she did not, which I appreciated that, but there also needs to be some type of, um, there needs to be something done about it. You can say you're aware of it, but if you're not making the steps to change the behavior. Um, and then obviously one of the biggest things is to let me out my contracts. So technically, um, I still get calls from organization trying to recoup that money. So I think that that is something that is essential, not financially binding a mother who's experienced, um, who you committed a wrongdoing against to come out the pocket. So it's kind of, you know, you're crippling, you're crippling, you're, I'm a single mother. I don't have the the resources to um, pay tuition there despite going there and then pay tuition at a new school on top of all the day-to-day expenses I have to worry about. So, um, I think that they needed to start there. Um, and, one thing that's also important is the school is situated in a black community. Um, so doing right by the community, uh, making sure that, you know, you have 
a good um you're treating your black students fairly your black and brown students fairly and you know all the other students this is not just specific to uh, black or brown students I, there's um white women and white fathers who have came to me white mothers and fathers who have came to me and said that they too experienced wrongdoing by way of that same executive director so i think that someone just needs to hold them accountable and that someone would be, in my case, since my daughter was in preschool, would be um, Job and Family Services, who was over um, the quality of care that children receive during their, their, their tenure at that school. So that's what it looks like for myself. I don't have an answer. I, um, I was going to say that this is real life and there's not mm-hmm. a tidy ending and that I'm still working through things and that, you know, we lost a lot, which is all very true. Where are things at at this point? And is there any possibility for justice in this particular situation? I don't think that there is. I shouldn't say that. I know that there is not. And I say that with a finality because um, the executive director is the same person who shared with the entire school in an email that she grew up with a black nanny. And so she couldn't possibly be racist and that she observed the Cincinnati riots in 2001, um, the Timothy Thomas riots. And she doesn't know for sure what it's like to be a black person, but she can imagine because she was the only white person um, during the riots. Uh, So I I think that when you do this kind of work Mm -hmm. and not even this kind of work, when you speak up Mm -hmm. about injustice, you have to know when to stop. Campaigning was making my stomach hurt. I had health issues. I was postpartum at the beginning of all of this. Um, I almost feel like I lost that first year with my daughter because I was campaigning and I was just so sure that if I worded things the right way, that if I said the right things, there would be a um, a come to Jesus moment, that there would be some empathy, that there would be a questioning attitude and that that did not happen with the director. But I think what's most harmful is that that did not happen with a lot of bystanders, local bystanders, um, other parents at the school specifically. So I don't really have an answer to Tina's question. I think this is messy in real life and no one wants to be the case study for why we need anti-racism training. And to be honest, after what happened with Janelle, anti-racism training won't fix overt racism, right? So um, I think it is helpful. I think that it is needed. But I think that anyone who who is looking to defend an adult that locked a four-year-old in a room, I'm not sure where to go from there. And therapy... um, we we call that phased pre-contemplation when you think about people who are who are resistant to therapy, um, the pre-contemplation stage in um, motivational interviewing is when people don't even notice the problem. So how right. can there be um, gains towards towards an angle if if you don't even see something as a, as a problem? So that's where the questioning attitude has to come in and the empathy and why some white people are farther along in this, this journey than others. You have to be interested and that takes empathy. And I'm not sure how to instill empathy, basic human empathy in people um, because it is so innate in me. Yeah, no, I hate your answer and appreciate your answer because it is true. It is messy and There's just this heaviness and this weight that we have to process through because of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And you said something earlier about whiteness protecting itself. Mm -hmm. And I just think of this director and all of the well-meaning white women who think that because they vote a certain way or they've had proximity to people or situations that give them a little bit of a glimpse into something that other white people might not have, it means nothing if they don't understand 
whiteness in its existence and the way that it protects itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this woman, I mean, like to me that she sent that email out, it's so absolutely highlighting the problem with whiteness. Yes, absolutely. Um, And that she still works there after that email. I think that, um, you know, we were privy to, you know, there were, there were parents in the school who still um, spoke with us on the condition of anonymity, of course, right? So I think that speaks to the culture yeah. of fear inside the school, but who kept us updated and abreast. And one of those parents sent us that. And um, we were just, I don't think we were appalled or surprised. We were like, well, this, this highlights it. Like, this is the case study. This is the example and still she held that position still no one apologized still the entire board um did not reach out to us to say we are so sorry this happened how can we make this right reconciliation was offered in december of 2018 so um amelia from montessori for social justice offered to do reconciliation for free, right? And she had nothing invested in this except that she's a Montessorian. She is social justice oriented and she is an anti-racist educator. So um, at the beginning, before I even started the campaign, they they were offered that and flat out said no. Like I still have the email. So flat out said no. Um, even brought on board the American Montessori Society for help and saying, hey, can you push your member school to do this? Like, we we have questions and we want to make this better. And for me, reconciliation, um, doing that was not because I wanted my son to go back. So that's where I feel pretty foolish, I think, is that I was going to do this regardless of if they accepted Lincoln back, right? So I was in the place of this hurts. I don't want it to hurt someone else. So you know, we we can do this and make peace with it, even though I have lost $50,000, even though I don't have a school for my son to go to, even though I'm still willing to work it out. And so for me to put that much emotional labor and physical labor and effort and be painted as someone that is aggressive or someone that has some kind of bias towards this woman is incredible. And it's incredibly hurtful, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't know. I feel like I have to end this with something, something super positive. Um, No, but you don't. And that's what, that's what I appreciate about your answer, because I feel like the tendency is to want to end on a high note and want to end on a positive note. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think I'm I'm more, you know, if we're looking at this as like a spectrum, which of course we are because I'm, I still have internalized respectability, right? So I'm like, I'm going to do this the right way. And then the very last thing I'm going to do is protest. Mm-hmm. Like that's the antithesis of, um, uh, of it all when that's not how we should look at it at all <laughs> because protest is not, it, it's not this bad, scary thing. Um, the injustice yeah. is. And so I still have to, to, to kind of um, mold my thinking around that. But I think there are a lot of people doing great work. I think that um, I was drawn to social work because I like to be on the ground. I like the humanness of social work. I like um, individual working with individuals versus attempting to change systems. I think that I was very naive at the very beginning of all of this because I was sure um, that 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 whole institutions would come on board. And that's not how it works, because when you think about um, social work or social justice work on a macro scale um, and who's invested, we still live in a capitalistic system. We still live um, in a system that's very political. Columbus, Ohio is a very big, small town. Um, Mm -hmm. Our governor, as wonderful as he is handling this um, pandemic, Um, was not so wonderful when we reached out to him about this. Um, So we went to every single level of government, literally told our stories to everyone, had specific asks for institutions that purport to do this work, including the Children's Hospital that I worked at, including um, an organization here through OSU that does studies on race and ethnicity and holds anti-racist trainings. We were literally 
outcasts and out outcasted. I don't think that's a word, um, but people, you know, held at arm's length. We're so sorry this happened to you, but there's nothing mm-hmm. we can do because politically it's tied to money. Right. So private schools and this is, you know, I could go. That's a whole nother episode with private schools and the issues. But the people on the board have money. People who donate to the school are millionaires. We I don't want to say we never stood a chance because we had a voice. But looking back, like we never stood a chance. Um, one of the mm-hmm. women who who donated to create a wing of the school is very prominent locally and gives money to the hospital, gives money to Ohio State University, gives money to these organizations who, on one hand, do stand up and talk about injustice, but not to the point where they would critique something that a donor is part of, right? So that part, um, I don't like it. I don't like, I don't like it at all. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like, I can't not speak truth to power. I don't care who you are. Um, and I cannot be collaborative. And I can't work with people who will shut down and not do the right thing because they are afraid of funding. And so I think that that piece, the capitalistic piece of it all, it's integrated into white supremacy. And I'm not sure how to navigate that. So I definitely do find for my own peace of mind and for my hope um, in order to make and create change is that you do have to protest. You do have to say, you know what, this wasn't right. We're going to make you listen. We're not going to ask. And historically, we know that's the only thing that has worked. So sorry, I'm long winded, but I'm encouraged by... Dr. Monique Morris, I don't know if you have heard of her. Um, She wrote the book Push Out, and it is now, NPR actually um, showed it nationwide, premiered, talking about the criminalization of Black girls in public schools. And lo and behold, a lot of it was shot in Columbus, Ohio, because we have a really big problem in our public schools with the criminalization of Black girls, you know, police officers coming in, school resource officers coming in. Um, physically removing children from the room, throwing them from their desks, things like that. So just that kind of paints a picture of the culture we were up against as well. Um, sometimes I think if we were in a different city, a more progressive city in a different part of the country, that things would have turned out differently. But Ohio is a very special, special place. <laughs> um, you know, when I was working with children as a therapist, I work with adults and adolescents now, but before last year when I was working with children, I was just appalled and I was just so tired of being surprised because I had no less than three other parents on my caseload who were fighting schools too. So it was different scenarios, but it all had to do with racism, just blatant Mm. law breaking. (laughs) And so that's just a lot of weight to do my own thing, to take care of my own needs, to take care of my son to be postpartum, to be working um, for other families as well. And hearing these stories, it's just, it was a lot. So I'm definitely taking 2020. Well, I thought it was a time to heal. And then there was the pandemic. So I'm just, um, it's still better than last year though, which I think says a lot about how it was. Yeah. So with this, we end the episode here. And so for the people who are listening, we don't have, like Megan said, a nice little wrapped up story here for you. And so we leave this space, you know, Megan, I know Tina and I, and our intention in this is to give space for your stories and your experience. And I want to thank you for sharing that with us because every time you share that, it is a re-traumatization. So I just want to acknowledge that that part of your story and thank you for coming on and speaking to us. And the hope here is that people who are listening, we know we've got a lot of people listening. We've got a lot of educators and parents and folks who want to be allies So we're hopeful that as they listen to this, seeds are planted and people start waking up and people start paying more attention and and speaking out. Because, I mean, we could go into a whole other segment here, but, and I won't do that to you, but one of the things I was thinking about is just like the way people showed up and didn't show up. Yeah, everybody can show up online, right? But when you've got to show up in person and you've got to put your body on the line and you've got to put your child's education on the line along with you in solidarity, then that somehow 
doesn't happen, right? right? Absolutely. Um, there are so there were so many parents that would identify as being progressive, um, but if you don't, and, and and I'm speaking about white parents, um, there are absolutely right. valid reasons um, why the other black parents and parents of color who had concerns did not come forward. While that is is unfortunate because both Janelle and I also put things on the line. If you are white, that is what using your privilege means. You have to show up. Otherwise, just don't do it. I, I just don't. <laughs> right. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to, I, I don't think, think that thank you is enough because you guys really sustained me, your podcast, because there's so much gaslighting and doubt that goes on. You know, I, if you read my posts under hashtag we see CMEC on Instagram, which are still open if people want to peruse, um, I sound very sure of myself, but this was a time in my life that was definitely one of the hardest things that have ever happened to me. And I'm going to cry. See, Jen, you guys are going to make me cry. That <laughs> validation is needed. I would listen to the different podcasts while I was, you know, walking with my daughter or, you know, jogging. And I'm like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. I'm not, you know, I haven't lost my marbles. Like I'm not overreacting. I'm not angry. I'm not aggressive. And while you know that, that validation is still really important. So um, the space that you and Tina have created are integral to the mental health of Black people in this country, and that cannot be overstated. So thank you as well, and thank you for having me. It's like I was fangirling when you guys asked. I was like, what? Me? Little old me? And so I really appreciate um, that this is the platform to get to get our story out there. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We just want to note, you may have noticed that Tina and Janelle kind of dropped off. No, we didn't take over the conversation selfishly, but we did have a little bit of a technical glitch and it happened to work out perfectly with timing, but we didn't get to do the typical thank you for coming on the show and where can we follow you. So we just wanted to thank Megan and Janelle for coming on Speaking of Racism and for sharing this story with us. You can follow Megan on Instagram at Trust Me I'm a Social Worker, and you can follow Janelle on Instagram at Janelle BF. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know. <laughs>